the king of the New Testament epistles, and for good reason. The letter is all about God and the good news that no matter who we are or what we've done, though we're all sinful and well-deserving of God's judgment, we can be saved from God's wrath simply by trusting in God's Son. We are put right with God through grace, through faith. Salvation is a gift from God. This is the message of Romans. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this incredible book. Alrighty, it is time to pick up. That long-awaited moment has arrived. You'll remember back in December, we put off Romans 9, 10, and 11 for reasons that I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, but it is that day has arrived, and we're going to take a look at that chapter, but not before asking God to help us, especially me. Heavenly Father, now as we take a look at Romans chapter 9, and just everybody knows that just a, a difficult chapter to wrap our minds around, some deep theological truths that are, are difficult to us, God, but with you all things are possible. We just pray that at the end of the day that we are edified and built up and that the Holy Spirit would help us to understand these truths. Lord, we look to you. Just simply to know that you're in charge and that you've got everything under your control, it's, it's actually quite a freeing and joy-filled thought. And so we pray that you would bless us as we look through your word now with the intention to not just hear it, but to obey it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, the minister at Pollyanna's church was one of those hell, fire, and brimstone kind of preachers. Well, you know Pollyanna, that 1913 classic children's novel, right, that got turned into uh, several different versions of film. And uh, week after week, this pastor brought the thunder, right? And so strong warnings and dire admonitions about living a life of repentance to avoid the wrath of God. And so one day, Pollyanna approached the pastor and said, Pastor, when my father was a minister, he would look for the glad texts only. And so he, the pastor, uh, listened to uh, her advice, and what she meant, of course, was uh, the glad texts are the passages that make us feel happy and comforted and reassured, and I agree with that. That pastor ought to see some sunshine and get some balance, you know? It's the gospel, good news, right? But unless um, you have some of the sadder texts and the texts that are sort of the bad news, that's really what puts the good in the gospel. You have to have the whole package. And so in the story, of course, he, he preaches exclusively glad texts from there on out. And the little town in Vermont uh, has a happy ending. And I would just add, unless, of course, they missed one of the sermons on repentance, which is required to get into heaven and after going to the church all those years to wind up perishing, uh, that's not a happy ending. But I do get Pollyanna's point, though. It's not just all about the bad news, and it's not all about just the glad text, right? It's a combination of what Paul the Apostle modeled when he was at, I don't think they called it this, but a pastor's conference in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, Paul the Apostle saying goodbye to all the pastors on the beach there in modern-day Turkey. And he's saying, listen, one thing, my conscience is clear because I have declared to you the whole counsel of God. You see, that would include the sad texts and the glad texts and the rad texts and the bad texts and the mad texts and, and everything else that rhymes with glad. <laughs> 
the whole councils, the whole thing. So when you preach topically, uh, you can you have the luxury of choosing your text, and uh, most preachers who preach topically would choose the glad text. I would, if that's how I did it. I mean, well, I welcome to the church and have a bummer text, right? But when you preach the Bible and teach through the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, which we have done for 17 years here, right? Then you don't have that luxury. You have to preach whatever is before you, and then that would be what God wanted to be declared, whether that is bad or glad, right? It's the whole council, and so moderation and balance is important, but last uh, year at Christmas time, we came to Romans chapter 9, and Romans chapter 9 is not thought of as a glad text uh, be, because it's kind of, it's not easy and lighthearted and First John 1, God is love and everybody who's born of God loves God and all of this easy, lighthearted stuff. Uh, it delves into some deep theological issues and how people are missing heaven and perishing and all of these things. And so uh, and that is why at Christmas time it came up because it follows chapter 8. And so when we got to chapter 9 at Christmas, I'm like, okay, let's fast forward, people. We'll fast forward 9, 10, and 11, which is a nice little package, and we'll go straight to 12. And then when we finish 12 through 16, we'll come back and we'll address 9, 10, and 11. So here we are. And in fulfillment of that promise to do that very thing, we're going to take a look at chapter 9. Now, for me, you know, the idea that God is sovereign and God is choosing and God knew everything beforehand and he's orchestrating and calling the shots, knowing that God is love and, and looking at the demonstration of that love on the cross, I think it's really good news that God is the one calling the shots. Amen? Amen? <laughs> All right, well, we're off to Romans 9. Okay, here we go. So he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the Jewish family, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all forever praised. Amen. Verse 6. But it's not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are actually Israel. Verse 7, nor because uh, they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, the scriptures say it is through Isaac that your offspring, your descendants, Abraham, will be reckoned moving on. In other words, it's not the natural DNA children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise, believers, who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, the Lord speaking to Sarah, who couldn't have children. Abraham couldn't father them either. And Sarah will have a son. That was the promise, and they believed that. That's what made them Jews. Not only that, let me give you another example. He says, Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done any good, anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, God choosing, God destining, might stand, not by works, our good works, but by him who calls. Sarah, I mean... Um, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written in Malachi chapter 1, Jacob I have loved, 
but Esau I hated. Now, do you see why you really can't say after reading that Merry Christmas? <laughs> I don't know, just a, a little bit not in keeping with Christmas time. And so if you're a note taker, thank you for that text. If you're a note taker, we, are, we have three ideas here. We've got the burden and we've got the advantage of the Jews and we've got the explanation, really the defense in light of Israel's failure as God's people. I mean, didn't God have the strength to carry them through and fulfill his promises? Is the failure permanent? And he's going to answer that question from verse 6 all the way through chapter 11. And we're taking a look at all of this now. So it opens up, it's going to open up in verses one through three with the sadness that Paul feels uh, for Israel because they fumbled the ball and he can relate to them. He, he grew up speaking Hebrew. He's a bona fide Jew and he identifies with the Jewish people and he thought how they think and he once lived as they lived and then Christ got a hold of his life and he took a look around and he says, what pain in my heart for those who are just like I once was, missing out on a blessing. And then he continues after verse three with verses four and five to say, what's really the most painful part is how they had such advantages. And he lists eight things that the Jewish nation had to set them up for success. If anybody on the planet should receive Jesus with open arms, it would be them. And he gives eight reasons why they were so benefited and graced and honored. What a privilege to be that nation. And yet there's a failure, so he has to explain. Well, did God fail, right? I mean, they're not exactly the heroes in the book of Acts, the troublemakers who are against Christianity are the leaders of the Jewish people. And so he has to explain, what's up with Israel? Is God done with them? Uh, or why are they the enemies? Didn't God make these, all these promises to them? Where are they? Right? And so he explains that. And that explanation gets a little bit complicated. But uh, at the end of the day, it's just beautiful and edifying things to be thinking about. So let's dive in right away with not a glad text, but a sad text because Paul has a burden for people who are lost, as you'll see here. He says, not gonna lie, I got a pain in my heart that never goes away. It never goes away because I have friends and family that don't know Jesus and they're perishing before my very eyes. And so he wants to talk about that. He says that I want to tell you the truth. I'm not lying. And so let's take a look at Paul's burden for the lost. He has a burden for the lost. I have down here, do you, do I? And uh, how do you have the uh, paradox here of the joy unspeakable that's full of glory, that Christ has set us free with this joy that Jesus said, man, I'm telling you th these things that your joy might be overflowing into the full. And yet, Paul can say, as all of us say in Christ, that at the same time that I have this wonderful joy and excitement, I have this unending pain and sorrow for those who are around me, whom I love, that I see perishing even right before my very eyes. Of course, there's joy unspeakable. God wants us to be joyful. But Jesus himself was a great example of the paradox, wasn't he? In Hebrews chapter 1, it says of Jesus that he was filled with, with joy more than any other person who ever lived. And at the same time, it was prophesied that he would be a man of sorrows, acquainted, well acquainted with grief. So those two things, this ecstatic joy of sins forgiven, raised to new life, the joys to come, the trumpet blast, the Father's house, a place for us, eternal pleasure at his right hand, all of that joy concurrent with this deep anguish and pang for those who are lost and who we see mocking our own stories, 
rebelling against the truth of the Bible, rejecting the gospel. Jesus, he said, this is why we have anguish in our hearts, because we're believers. And Jesus made the destiny of unbelievers very, very clear. And he said, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son shall not see life for the wrath of God abides on them. So we know about the narrow way that leads to life. We know about the broad way that leads to destruction that many go down because we were on that path. But we got plucked out by the grace of God because we heard the gospel and somehow we believed and God caused us to, and quoting the Bible, to cross over from death into life, right? But guess what? We get snatched out of the shark-infested waters. We were drowning, and God rescues us, puts us on the ship, and comforts us with his love. We got the blanket of the Holy Spirit and the comfort of God and the love of God poured into our hearts, and, and all the while, we see the splashing and the flailing and the drowning and the gulping of our loved ones, our friends, and our family, because if it's true of us going to heaven, it's true of them going to hell, and they're doing it right in front of us. And so, of course, if you are a Christian, you have Christ in your heart, and you believe the scriptures, you know that Jesus isn't exaggerating. He's saying, if they don't put their faith in Christ before they die, they will go to a place that he calls blackest darkness, where he says the flame never dies. He calls it the lake of fire. Oh, how could we not? I was talking to some dude years ago in Petaluma. Our kids were little. They were all swimming in a pool. And I was sharing the gospel. And he goes, so you really believe? that anybody who doesn't have Christ is going to go to hell. And I said, dude, that's not my idea. That's what the Bible says over and over and over again, but there's a way out. And he goes, man, he goes, he's a smart dude. And he, he says this, he goes, that must be a lot of cognitive dissonance. <laughs> and after I looked it up, <laughs> I knew it, didn't I? He goes, he goes, that must be such a heavy burden. And I said, it is. It is a heavy burden. And it never goes away. Just like the Bible says in Proverbs, laughter can uh, conceal a heavy heart. But when the laughter ends, there's grief that can remain. So Paul says, not going to lie. I got a pain that never goes away because I know where unbelief ends. And so he says, I've got a, this pain in my heart for the lost. Uh, why the quasi kind of oath there in the beginning? He says, man, the Holy Spirit's telling my conscience, these aren't just words. I'm not just wishful thinking, oh, I really love them. Why does he have to do that? Why is it almost not believable that he could love them like that? Because they're the ones who are chasing him from town to town. Read the book of Acts. Who's stirring up the mobs? Who's slandering him? Who's calling what Paul's saying a cult? They called us a cult. They called us the way. And they called it a cult of Judaism. Called us heretics. And they wanted to kill Paul. So the bad guys in the story who caused Paul the most pain were his Jewish friends and family. So he says, despite that and how you might think that natural inclination of man is to hate those who hurt you. He says, no, I'm telling you the truth. And even the Holy Spirit is revealed. I have this ache in my heart for those people. He says, and if possible, and it is not. He said, I would go to hell so that they might be saved. <laughs> One writer put it this way. He said, here's a guy with a constant ache in his heart, unceasing burden for those who are perishing, who in great love would even be willing to trade places with someone so that they could get to heaven. And what about us? 
How can the truth of God reside in our hearts and the spirit of Christ live within us without the slightest concern, without any prayer or effort on our part to reach those who are perishing right underneath our noses? And so, no, you do not have to be an evangelist. You do not have to be one. You do, not, you do not have to talk about Jesus day and night to people. You don't need to even know where all the scriptures are in the Bible. But dear God in heaven, if you call yourself a believer and you believe the Bible, the Bible says your friends and family who are shunning Christ are going to be, if they die in that condition, eternally condemned. That ought to do something about the way we think about somebody who's sitting in the carpool uh, car with us, next to us at work. But instead, here's what we do. Oh, my boss is just a, a mean person. My boss, oh, he's always using bad language and, and all of this stuff while he's perishing. And God puts you there in that family, at that school, in that place to be light to throw a lifeline. And, and you're not going to throw a lifeline if you don't care. You don't even think it's really going to happen. But if the trumpet sounded in three seconds, and it can, or if their silver cord is cut in three minutes, and it can be, then what? They're either left behind and doomed to the seven years that will destroy the earth so that nobody survives at the end, Jesus said, unless the days are cut short, or they perish into a Christless eternity. Did you, did you bother saying, hey, I'm a Christian? Hey, hey, I, can I pray for you? Hey, there's a way. I see the, the bridge is out, the road you're on. Did you bother? God, help the Christian who winds up in heaven and, 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 and God rolls the tape. There's no prayers for them. There's no talking to them. There's no concern in the heart. All it is is me, myself, and my problems and my life. And God's answering my prayers for me, myself, and I. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. I've got a quote. He said, the great passion for souls gave Paul perspective. Lesser things didn't trouble him because he was troubled by the greater thing, the souls, the eternal souls of men, their eternal destiny. Get love for souls of men. Then you will not be whining about everyday cares or about the quirks of family life or the trouble that John and Mary may make by their idle talk. You will be delivered from petty worries. And then he says, I need not further describe them. <laughs> yeah, you did a good job. If you are concerned about the souls of those perishing around you, get your soul full of the greater concern and your petty cares will be driven out. So it's healthy. It's a healthier perspective and it's normative to have a pain and that pain ought to get you to pray and ought to get you to say something. And like I said, you don't have to be an evangelist. You don't even have to. I mean, if somebody's house is on fire, oh, are you going to say, well, I've never been trained as a firefighter. And so, you, you know, can you knock on the door? Can you throw a rock through the window? Can you scream? Can you pray? Can you call 911? What about this nothing? Just Nothing. I would question whether or not you're saved. You have to. You, you can't have new life and have Christ. Christ died for the sins of the world and he cares about them. You can't have Christ living in your soul and you not care if somebody goes to hell or not, especially if they're a loved one. Okay, we can move on. <laughs> Let's move on. He says, you know what really rings my bell? is that they had this great advantage. It's like if any nation should be Christian, guess what? It's them, right? So he says, he lists eight things right there. He says, now, Israel's advantage is the sting, isn't it? Now, when somebody's been set up like, like beyond craziness for, to make it, and they self-sabotage, that, to me, is the saddest thing. And this is what is really driving Paul crazy, is that not only didn't it have to happen that anybody with that kind of privilege and knowledge should perish, but he says it just, it's unbelievable 
the forfeiting of the grace when they were set up to such success. It would be kind of like the star collegiate athlete uh, who's headed to the pro leagues and he trades it all for drugs and alcohol. It's like, dude, you got it all, man, come on. Or the genius high school student who's already been accepted, really, to Ivy League colleges and he gets caught cheating on some kind of entrance thing. That, that's the sting. It's like you were a genius. You didn't need to lose it all. Everything was for you. That's the thing that the Bible is like, wow. It would be like someone who was raised in a loving Christian home who winds up an atheist, and then if he or she continues, winds up perishing. Now, you tell me who's got more of a sting in hell. The guy who grew up as an atheist and never really heard much of the gospel, he had it in the creation. He had a conscience. He heard it here and there, but he rejected it. Compare him in hell to the kid who was raised in the church, who heard the gospel and had it lived out in a loving, practical way, who grew up and went to youth groups his whole life or her whole life, went to Bible school, retreats, and, and Bibles in every room in the house, and Christian music in every day of his life and her life. Christian parents, Christian brother, Christian sister. And he winds up in hell with the rest of hell saying, dude, of all the souls who have perished, you are the one who doesn't belong. You are the one that shouldn't be here the most. There'll be a lot of gnashing of teeth for those who had the greatest advantages in life. Like Israel, wow, eight of them. I have them here listed for you. We can't spend a lot of time on them, but he says there are eight things that God did for Israel that it's like when you think about it, it's like how could you not? You know, because really... Every promise in the Bible, if you looked on the bottom of it, it would say made in Israel. It's the gospel, the Messiah is a 100% Jewish product. It is exported from Israel. And to have them to reject is just crazy and mind-boggling. So he says he called the nation his son. And so God adopted them as his firstborn son, as the Bible says, that God likes to call them. Now, the idea here is is that they didn't earn it. It's very odd to just pick somebody and say, I'm going to choose you out of the whole world. But for some reason, he saw Abraham and Sarah. He chose them and their ancestors. He called his adopted family his adopted son because it had nothing to do with them. So why would you throw away a father like God who would adopt you and make you feel so special? Number two, he said, the divine glory. So along with the father God comes the presence of God and that glorious presence manifested itself a lot to his people. So as he's leading his people out of the slave pits of Egypt, there's this glorious cloud of glory, a pillar of fire. That was the presence of God. It was called the Shekinah glory. It means, uh, the rabbis coined that. It means to cause to dwell the very presence of God in 1 Kings chapter 8 when they dedicated the, the temple. The Shekinah glory came down so thick and so glorious that the priests had to stop what they were doing. They couldn't minister and everybody was on their face for hours. He says, Where did you find that? In India, in China, in Indonesia, in South America? No, there's only one place you could find that happening. And it's kind of like King David said in one of his prayers. He said, God, do you treat all nations like this? Do you treat all people like this? Man, you have really lavished your love in a special way on your people, Israel. The covenants that God made arrangements with Abraham about Uh, the people of Israel, his descendants, and the land, and they belong to 
Israel, those covenants. The receiving of the law, the Ten Commandments, right? I mean, where would you go in the whole world to find out what's right or wrong from God's point of view? Could you go to uh, someplace in Africa or someplace in the Orient or someplace in North America? No. There was no revelation from God to man outside of one place, Israel. And God hand writes it. Here's what I require. Here's what's going to help you come to a saving knowledge of a Messiah who can save you because you fall short of those commands. The receiving of the law was to the Jews from Moses and not Charlton Heston. (laughs) The temple worship, how would we approach God? Well, God told the, the Israelites, this is how you approach me with a blood sacrifice that stands for a stand-in to cover your sins. And so who would know that? <laughs> Nowhere on earth as they bow before rocks and snakes and worship elephants and trees and toss their kids into the fire and hope for a good harvest. That's what the world had to offer But when you went to Israel, you had priests lifting up their hands and singing psalms, yes, and offering lambs as a sacrifice for sins, pointing to the love of God who would come and die for the sins of the world, the promises. One writer said, how blessed to be a recipient of the promise of the living God. How do you turn your back when you have a a promise from God Almighty? How do you do that? Why forfeit that? And then Paul saves, well, he's got the patriarchs. He's saying, who's the Bible heroes? They're all Jews. They're all Jews. Even our Bible heroes of the church, the progenitors of the Christian church, they're all Jews, Peter, James, and John. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of the Old Testament all the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Amos, name them Jonah, name anybody you know in the Bible except Luke. It's the only Goyim. Goyim means Gentile. Everybody else, he's saying, wow, God has really just focused in and for God. He always loved the world, but he said, I need to gather together and make a sharp little entrance, the door through which I can come and reach the whole world. And part of Israel's rejection is part of the plan that he opened wide the door to everybody else. And then he saves the best for last. And he says, the Messiah, the savior of the world, who, by the way, is God in the flesh. That's what he says. You can go back to where it says God in the flesh there. He says, just back to 4B through And theirs is the human ancestry of Christ who is God over all. You know those people who say, where does it say in the Bible that Jesus is God? Well, there's one place right there. There's a lot of other places as well. But Paul's saying, look, (laughs) that God made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and King David that he would come into the womb of one of their descendants, and that would be Mary. So he is fully 100% human. God himself incarnates himself called the son of God, the second person of the Godhead. And he plants himself with no help of Joseph or any man and implants himself as deity, fullness of God in human form, Colossians 2.9. And out comes what? The God-man whose purpose was to go to that cross and to lay down his life and become the offering to shed his blood for the sins of the world. Now, why wouldn't Israel had 300 prophecies staring at the God-man who could walk on water and raise up dead people. And when you cut off somebody's ear, like Peter did in the garden, God says, no problem. Jesus picks it up and puts it back on his head. They should have, somebody should have said something right there. Someone just, someone just should have said, hey, I'm out, I'm out. <laughs> this is who appeared to them 
and this is who was rejected. He came to his own, and his own received him not, but to all who did receive him, he gave the power. Now, there are 2.18 billion Christians, so they say. Only 1.5 million of them are Jews. That means that 99.9% of those who belong to God today are not Israel. So Paul says, how is this possible with the eight things? How is this possible that 99.9% of people who are going to heaven are all non-Jews? Shouldn't it be Israel leading the way? And he says, well... Do you think the problem is with God? So he moves on. Now the explanation. It is not as though God's word has failed. Let's go now finally to our last point. The explanation of election, how God does things. He's in charge and how he works and, and, and how to explain Israel's failure. And by the way, those eight privileges listed is to show you by the end of chapter 11, he's going to say, oh, and by the way, he keeps his promise to the nation because they get saved. Chapter 11, verse 25, through the last seven years and through something called Armageddon, all of Israel becomes a Christian nation, verses 25 of chapter 11. And so part of what he's saying is is that nationally, God is going to keep those promises. But he wants, in the meantime, for all the millions who reject, he wants to tell us what's up with that. And so here's the explanation here before you. You follow along in your verses there. So he says, it's not that God's promises failed. He's he's saying, you might look at Israel and say, God didn't come through for them. And maybe Christians might think, well, he didn't come through for them. Maybe he won't come through for me. So Paul is going to start to comfort our hearts about this so we can understand what's really happening with the Jewish rejection of their Messiah. Now, um, he says, number one, for verse six, for not all Israel, not all who are Israel are actually truly Israel. What does he mean by that? That's simple. He's saying lots of people say just because they have the DNA and, and they celebrate Hanukkah, It doesn't mean that they're true Jews because in order to be a true Jew, you have to be like Abraham, not just with your DNA, but Abraham's heart. Abraham believed God and that was what put him right with God. So he says, it's not the genetic, if you're following me, it's not the biological kids that are Israel per se. They are nationally Israel, but it's those who through Isaac, he says, your children will be reckoned. In other words, they couldn't have kids. God said, you're going to have kids. They believed that, even though they were 199, and they were 99 and 90, and they had Isaac, and God brought new life. God brought the miracle. So he says, it's through believing like Abraham that the new life comes. It's not just simply by being Jewish. And that's what happened with the Pharisees. They said to Jesus in John chapter 8, God made promises to Abraham's children. And guess what, Jesus? You're looking at them. So Jesus said, they said, Abraham's our father. And we're blessed because of that. And Jesus said, Abraham's not your father. Oh, you have the DNA. But if Abraham was was your father, you wouldn't be trying to kill me. Because that's not how Abraham acted when he saw me. And then they wanted to kill him because they said, you're not even 50 years old and you're claiming to know Abraham from 2,000 years ago. And he says, well, let me put it to you this way. Before Abraham was, I am. Using the same phrase that Jehovah in the burning bush used in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14 when when Moses says, who are you? And he says, I am. And Jesus says, before Abraham was... I am who I am. Whoa, they want to kill him. Because, and here's the quote, because you, a mere man, make yourself equal to God, you see? So they thought everything was cool. He said, no, you're not really a Jew. Two Pharisees who are Jewish. He says, you're not really Israel because Abraham is 
the father of Israel, and Abraham believed, and that's what put him right. So Isaac, if you're from Isaac's line and not Ishmael's line, Ishmael came when he says Ishmael here, Ishmael came the natural way. They were waiting on God to fulfill the promise. He was taking too long, so they said, hey, well, let's do it man's way. So he has a, a relationship with Sarah's servant girl. And he says, no, that's not, that's not going to work. That's going to make you have the DNA, but it's not going to save you. You have to believe like Abraham, and that's the point of this. And, and he says, that's exactly what was told. It was the promise. It's through Isaac. If you believe the promise, you're going to have life, and you're going to be in the, in the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and anyone else who believes like Abraham. That's why Paul said earlier, if you believe like Abraham, you're the true Jew. Because a true Jew is one inwardly, he said. Now, nationally, there are some promises. It doesn't make us replace Israel because God's got a plan for the nation. But he says, for all intents and purposes, if you want to just put it, to, to put it this way, that when you believe the promise of the gospel... You're grafted into a very Jewish thing, and for all intents and purposes, you become very Jewish because you're related to Christ, who's related to Abraham, who's a Jew. So welcome. <laughs> Thought about having a bar mitzvah right now <laughs> for all of us here, and so, yeah, that's what he said. Now he says, now he can hear some people say, yeah, okay, we can get that because, you know, Ishmael had an Egyptian mother and all. Of course, it would come through Isaac. He goes, let me explain it to you this way. Okay, let's finish up with 10 through 13. He goes, I'll give you another example, but one that <laughs> Rebecca's children had one and the same father. So they come from, now this comes from bona fide Jewish parents, right? So he says, before the twins were born, same Mom, same dad, both Jewish. God has already decided what was going to happen because he knows all things. And he said, the older will serve the younger. Let's talk about this. So here's the point of this. First, he's saying, you can't get to heaven because of things like DNA or where you live or how you grow up or who you're related to, right? Oh, but God, my father was a pastor. My, my uncle... Yeah. None of that matters. And then secondly, he's going to say, and by the way, it doesn't matter if you're a good person or a bad person. It doesn't work that way. Salvation doesn't work that way. It's a matter of believing in God. Good, bad, irrelevant. It's called dead or alive. And you become alive when you trust in Christ. And that's really going to be the point here. So let's look, take a look, closer look and then we're done. So... Uh, Two boys, same father, Jewish father, Isaac, Jewish mother, Rebecca, twin boys, same womb, same home, everything. One is a beneficiary of the promise and one is rejected, right? So let's talk about what's going on. So first of all, when it comes to salvation, God wants you and me to know that this is his department. Men aren't in charge here. We have a part to play because he says choose. But God's way ahead of the game because he knows who's going to choose and he's already chosen and his choice and our free will choosing are working together. How that works is pretty awesome. When we get to heaven, as one of the old school gospel guys used to say, your first words will be, of course, because we're going to have a freed up mind. We'll understand how God can determine and we can not be violated our free will. So God's will and our will are working together and somehow that all works. And so Rebecca was having issues. She couldn't have a baby. She was crying. Isaac prayed and then she became pregnant with twins. And one day they were like having a fight in there. And so she went to the temple and asked through the priest, the Lord, what's going on in my womb? And God gave her the answer as Paul records. Um, the Lord said, there are two boys and two nations in your womb. One nation is stronger than the other and will be. And in this case, the older one will be subservient 
to the younger ones, seeing, seeing that he's already known them before they were born, all right? So God's saying, I know what's coming, and he's putting things in place in order that, look at verse 11, in order that God's purpose might stand. We might not know how God is orchestrating everything, but he is in charge. He is in charge. And we may not understand the purpose until we get to heaven, but he has a good purpose, and God is love, and that comforts our hearts. But so these two boys, Jacob, his name will be changed to Israel. He has 12 sons, right? So his descendants are literally called the children of Israel because Jacob is Israel, you see? And then the other boy, Esau, the other twin, He's the bad guy in the story, obviously. Now, here, here's what he does. He moves down south, down to where southwest Jordan is today, and he starts marrying a bunch of wild women and, and Canaanites, and he gives up on, on the faith and all of that, and he is nicknamed Edom because as proof of this carnal, profane man, one day when he was super hungry, he traded his spiritual birthright. In other words, his relationship with God. He said, who cares about that? I'm hungry. I want that red stew, the red lentils. And so the Bible nicks, nicknames Esau Edom, which means red for his terrible trade. And so when he moves south, he becomes a nation down there, the Edomites, they're no longer Jews. His Jewish ancestry is washed out. And they become a thorn in Israel's side. They are the bitter enemies of Israel uh, there in the Bible. But honestly, to talk about the twins before they were born God-choosing, right? I'll tell you what. Uh, honestly, Jacob isn't much better. Uh, a woman... <laughs> A woman says to Charles Spurgeon, I can't understand why God would say he hated Esau. And Spurgeon says, Madam, my problem isn't that he hates Esau, it's that he loves Jacob. <laughs> Jacob is a conniver. He's a liar. You, you know, you want to know the truth? They were both losers, all right? <laughs> they, they really were. Jacob, oh my word and that dysfunctional family. You know how he produces Israel? Through four women. And they're having baby wars, you know, and they're all fighting with each other. Read it in Genesis. It's nasty. It's like, you know, you've got this hairy, manly Esau. That's how the Bible describes him. He's an outdoors guy. He loves to hunt and, and catch wild game and, and, and cook it up for his dad. And Isaac loves him better than Jacob, who remained in the tents and hung out with the gals and liked to read, all right? So, 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 and he was mama's boy. He was mama's boy in the Bible. Now, here's what God says through Malachi chapter one. He hated one of them and he loved the other one. Why? Because, not because either of them were lovable or did anything good. It didn't matter. Here's what mattered. One day when he was in the tents and all the women were running around, he happened to read something that brought him to faith. He started to have faith in the living God and the bells rang. And God says, Jacob, I have loved. The word can mean accepted. Why? Because of his approach to God. And then what about Esau? Esau had time and time again, had chances and chances and chances. And then just as a good example, they put down a bowl of hot stew in front of him and he's like, who cares about God? Who cares about heaven? I want my wild women. I want my, want my appetites, my passions. And Esau stands for everyone who perishes because they, they forfeit the grace of God because of what they're carnal lusts want only. You see? Now, God didn't say, I like you and I hate you. He didn't do that. <laughs> and the word hate there doesn't mean that emotional, I hate you. It means I reject you. Why? Because he rejected God. Because he said, I want the stew more than heaven. I want the stew, not you, Lord. 
That's what happened there, people. God just doesn't go, oh, you know, I have this arbitrary, yeah, you're kind of cute, I like you. You know, he doesn't do stuff like that. He has a purpose, he has a plan. And somehow Jacob's heart warmed up and that conniver got saved. And God said, I love that because he had provision in Christ. Now, here's, and I close with this, listen. This is a fascinating twist that Esau and Jacob are not done there. Oh, they're going to meet again in 2,000 years from that date. 2,000 years, fast forward, you're going to have a blood descendant of Jacob and a blood descendant of Esau face to face. They might have even looked like Jacob and Esau because they're blood to them. 2,000 years later, they meet on a Friday morning, on Good Friday morning. And the son of Jacob is 40 times great-grandson Jesus, who is blood to Jacob 40 generations back. And King Herod, who is an Edomite, who is a blood descendant of Esau, face to face, and guess what's happening on Good Friday? You have Jacob and you have Esau, and you're having the fight, and you're having Jacob I have loved, and you got Esau there, who's doing what Esau does, mock and profane the Son of God, God in a human body, this close And he's laughing and mocking and saying, show me a trick. Show me a miracle. I've been waiting all day for this. And it says, hey, put one of my purple robes on him. Esau to Jacob. Oh, never. More clear depiction of both of them. And here's the twist. Esau sends him off. Ah, get out of here. Who wants that? Jacob and his God and all of that. And then he goes to the cross. And because God loved Jacob so that Jesus could be born, he dies so that anyone, Jacob or Esau, that any Esau could come to Jacob and have life. This is the glad text of the mercy and the love of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love. And no matter how deep and profound the theology of salvation is, God, we, we can't figure you out, but we know you're good and we know your love and we know your heart is that none perish. So help us, God, to yield our lives to you and to trust you, not to overthink, to let you have your way in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.